0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, tensions increase in the Middle East, as Pakistan strikes targets within Iran. We'll have the latest from the FIBA region. According to the Premier, China's economy is doing fine, but official figures differ from his positive comments at Davos. Just how broke is Beijing? Then...
1: I'm David Phelan, Monocle's technology correspondent in San Jose, reporting on the new big launch from Samsung. Three phones and even a smart ring that can monitor your health.
0: Thanks, David. He'll be telling us the way
2: forward from San Jose. Plus, we'll hear from Davos. It always ends up being our argument to, well, we could be spending that money better down here on Earth. You know, slamming the billionaires for spending their money to go to space instead of everything that we're doing to go to space is ultimately about improving life on earth also ahead from chicken or fish to
0: top banana we'll chart a flight attendants path to head of japan airlines with a look through the papers from paris and a roundup of nordic news that's all ahead here on the globalist life from london to look at what else is happening in the news. An Ecuadorian prosecutor who is investigating the on-air attack at a television station last week has been murdered. Singapore's former transport minister has been charged in court, the anti-corruption agency said today, in one of the most high-profile graft cases involving a minister in the Asian financial hub in decades. And protests against the far-right alternative for Germany party are gaining momentum in the wake of a report that two senior party members discussed plans for the mass deportation of citizens of foreign origin. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the United States has returned the Yemen-based Houthi rebels to a list of terrorist groups, as the militants claimed a further attack on a US-operated vessel in the Red Sea region. And now, Pakistan has conducted strikes inside Iran, targeting separatist militants, two days after Tehran said it attacked Israel-linked militant bases inside Pakistani territory. Yossi Meckleberg, an associate fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton, joins me now in the studio. Yossi, many thanks for coming in. I wonder if you could start by telling us how and why Pakistan was targeted by the Houthis.
3: Good morning. I think what happens as a result of the last four months, which started actually when the war in, in, in Gaza, that a lot of unresolved conflicts are resurfacing. So those are not new conflicts. You know, what we're talking about Yemen and and, and the Houthis, you know, the the axis of resistance led by Iran. So it's the Houthis and Hezbollah and Hamas and and another organization. And, and 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 in the case of of Pakistan in in Iran the pro, uh, pro, uh, provinces of Baluchistan and Sistan that looking for for autonomy feel discriminated, there are natural resources that that they feel that they don't enjoy, so there are a lot of issues of of tensions. You know, Iran and and Pakistan long border with with tension not always in 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 control. Bear in mind of Afghanistan and and, and the Taliban. So there are a lot of organizations and movements that most of the time we don't even hear about them, but these cross-border militant groups that work together do exist. They do challenge this, uh, uh, this government in all sorts of uh, action of, of militancy, but when everything is open now, as it uh, right now, Government takes, takes advantage of this situation and try to resolve, send uh, messages to, to each other that they should deal with that. But obviously what Iran did vis-a-vis Pakistan, not Pakistan in retaliation, is in a clear violation of international law, mm. of, of violation of the sovereignty. So,
0: I mean, how does this attack within Iran mark an inflection point in, in the conflict?
3: Now, I think the, the, the problem with this, if it's an isolated case and they send messages you know to capitals deal with that we won't tolerate again in in these cases between sunni and shia and you know very very old conflict between sunni and shia that emerges in 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 different places but there is always the danger of 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 escalation Uh, in this case both governments argue that civilians were killed so this might lead now that Pakistan attacked Iran or bombed Iran, that Iran will retaliate even more force. And that's where we see that miscalculated escalation can take place. And when there is fragility in the system and when collective security fails, because it's obvious that the Security Council can't impose its will, in, on, on any conflict right now, whether it's Ukraine or Israel-Palestine, anywhere, and there are so many unresolved issues. You can mention Kashmir, for instance, for, for 76, 77 years. This creates the environment the atmosphere in which this kind of operation might take place. And countries and organizations takes the law and international law into their hands.
0: I mean, analysts tell us that Iran has no appetite for a fight and it's content to see its proxies battle it out. How how likely is that to remain the case?
3: Well, the question how, how much the rest of the world is ready to allow the proxies without dealing with, with, with Iran. Iran feels very comfortable with the situation right now because it can always distance itself from the proxies. Now the proxies doesn't always do exactly what Iran would like it to do. But at the same time, Israel is, is engaged with, with war in Gaza and, and with low intensity conflict with the Hezbollah in, in, in Lebanon, so this is comfortable. The, right now, the cost of what happens in the South Red Sea to the world is in the billions because at the end of the day, like 15% of, of shipping, and and thirty percent of container trade is going through the Suez Canal. If this stops, it means uh, 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 delaying delaying shipping by two and a half weeks. If they go through Africa with with huge costs, while while Iran can distance itself but enjoying the fruits of all mm-hmm. of it and shows the world that it can disrupt 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 the economy, disrupt uh, international affairs, while not being directly involved. At a certain point, someone might uh, actually, instead of targeting the proxies, we should target Tehran.
0: Uh, The US has now officially redesignated the Houthis as a terror group. Does that change anything?
3: I I think it sends a signal to the Houthis. You know, if you continue like this, there are many financial implications for this in in, in terms of their uh, freezing their assets. Uh, there are also differences between two terms in the way that a uh, terrorist organization is designated by the State Department. One that actually can also prevent them from traveling, not not only dealing with, with, with their assets. But I think that the, the signal is clear to the Houthis. Bear in mind, this is also dangerous because there is a v- very fragile ceasefire in, in, in Yemen between the, the, the Saudi-led coalition and the Houthis. And by hitting two... Uh, too, I mean, too strongly, too powerfully uh, The Houthis. This might actually might create a meltdown of 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 the ceasefire. There, that Americans don't have an interest. On the other hand, can't allow to for the Houthis to keep attacking shipping in 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 the Red Sea and 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 blocking. We are also in an election year in the United States, in 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 the UK. If the result of it is increasing inflation especially in the United States, rising the price of, of, of petrol, this is also something that the Biden administration can allow. So it's a trying to to square many circles at the same time without creating an all-out war in this region.
0: Mm. So the European Union's discussed plans to defend the Red Sea against Houthi attacks uh, with anti-air destroyers. I, I wonder if there's been any movement on that.
3: Well, we hear that, you know, only yesterday that actually the European Union said that it needs... It, Europe always likes to s- sit on the fence and expect the United States now. So, with the UK not being part of the European Union, deal with hard power, which the U- and the European Union deal with soft power, through so diplomacy and trying to influence situation. But they realize that actually trade that affects Europe again and might affect inflation in 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 Europe uh, is is affected. What's happened in 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 the in the Southern Red Sea in Bab el Mandeb all the region there so there is a, a reaction also because there is a pressure from the united states is as in other cases in in military conflicts is the burden falls on on the united states and the european union mm. side, so i think this is also symbolic it's not militarily; it's the united states can always deal with this By itself, but the question is symbolic: whether the European Union shows support militarily, not only diplomatically.
0: Uh, And is Israel taking any direct action to defend the Red Sea?
3: Well, there there are some. They need to defend their part of of the the Red Sea. Israel, of course, has a border, a lot in this part of the Red Sea. This is also a route of Iran sending weapons or used at least to, uh, to Hamas and other uh, militant, uh, militant groups. Yes, the, the, the Israeli Navy Air Force is, 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 is very active in, the, in, in, the, in this part of the world, but obviously right now Israel involved with a war with more than one border, which is less than ideal, while the war in Gaza, I think, is, is extending beyond what Israel expected back on 7th of October.
0: So, Yossi, just just to sum up, in terms of of regional contagion, what you're saying then is less likely for us to suddenly see, say, Iran or Pakistan weighing in and saying, we are now part of this conflict. It's going to be small groups, cross-border militias joining up with each other.
3: A lot of this happens anyway in places like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran. This is all something of, of, of the daily. Now, all of a sudden... All of a sudden, as a result of the fragility and volatility of the situation, this surfaces. The danger is that it can escalate into a regional war, what called cascading war. And this is something that all the forces, all the powers involved in it should be aware of. I don't think they, they would like to find themselves, Iran, Israel, the United States, other forces directly involved, but this might be the end result of it.
0: Yossi, thank you very much indeed. That's Yossi Meckleberg there. And this is The Globalist. UBS is a global
4: financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage.
0: Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and
5: heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right
0: ideas of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivalled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real
4: difference.
0: Tune in to the Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 15.13 in Beijing, 7.13 here in London. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos on Tuesday, Chinese Premier Li Qiang said that China has beaten its target of economic growth of about 5%. He presented China as an attractive market for global companies. Well, I'm joined now by Patricia Thornton, Associate Professor in the Politics of China at the University of Oxford. Patricia, thanks for, for coming on the show. How much of a disconnect is there between what Lee said and the actual economic figures?
6: Well, uh, good morning. Uh, good, very cold morning to you, Georgina, actually. And in terms of the disconnect, we, we, we honestly don't know because the sources of reliable information on the Chinese economy have been uh, drying up under Xi Jinping. Um, but what we do know is that uh, there has been some speculation on Chinese social media, for example, that that 5.2% uh, was quite a padded figure. And it was padded in part by uh, the desire to make sure that the, um, the target set by the leaders in Beijing for this year's GDP growth or t- sorry, 2023 GDP growth was in fact met. So at the very, very end of last year. Uh, one of the last days of December, there was a quiet release of information from the National Statistics Bureau that the 2022 GDP figure had been readjusted in accordance with current prices. And Goldman Sachs has estimated, in fact, that that readjustment added about 2% to the growth figure for this year, which is very, very significant indeed. So how
0: did Lee attempt to spin it? What, What was he saying at Davos?
6: Very sadly, I think he was trying to be poetic or something. But he, in reassuring everyone that the Chinese economy was doing well, he likened the Chinese economy to the uh, to the Alps with their magnificent peaks and valleys. And perhaps he didn't understand that for capitalist investors, the idea of magnificent peaks and, in particular, valleys was not going to be, uh, you know, a, a great selling point for the Chinese economy. And indeed, no matter how positive the spin was that he tried to put on his, his announcement of the 5.2 GDP growth last year. Uh, the stock markets weren't buying it. Uh, the Hong Kong uh, stock market uh, basically tanked, um, and it was at one of its lowest levels. It's, I think it's shed about 10% of its total value since the beginning of this year in January. Shanghai index was also down, and then in New York City, the NASDAQ golden China index was also down very significantly. So the stock markets are not buying the positive rhetoric coming out of China.
0: So then let's look at what's behind the economic problems. Is this internal or are there geopolitical factors uh, driving this downturn?
6: yeah so there's a lot going on here and some of it is longer term and some of it is more immediate of course so we've seen foreign direct investment has gone off a cliff basically as of last year no doubt uh in part spurred by uncertainty about the chinese economy moving forward and that uncertainty has a lot to do with the policies of xi jinping which have have been um, not exactly friendly and not reassuring to foreign investors. So foreign direct investment, has, we've now seen for the first time in uh, since 1998, a net outflow of capital coming from China. The, so foreign direct investment is down to a new low. Um, we have also seen, um, for example, uh, a, a, a lot of concern about China's falling um, population, which was also announced yesterday.
0: I mean, those figures about the population is extraordinary. Just reading here, it says in the next 10 years, about 300 million people currently aged 50 to 60 uh, are set to leave the workforce. I mean, that's got to have an enormous uh, uh, impact, particularly when pension budgets are already stretched.
6: Yes, absolutely. And China doesn't have much of a social welfare net, as we've talked about, I think, in the past. So having an ageing population that is not being replaced uh, by new workers, new children being born, is a very significant long-term demographic shift that does not augur well for the Chinese economy. So what internal
0: measures could China take to get back on track? And how might that affect the global economy?
6: Well, one of the things that China has been doing uh, in the last two or three years is they've actually reactivated their old family planning bureaucracy, which was in charge of ensuring that every family had only one child years ago. And those workers are now going out into the community. They are contacting newly married couples. They're trying to preach the, uh, the value of having more than one children. They're trying to give awards to mothers who have more than two or three children children and this kind of thing but it's actually not worked at all because the uh, the birth rate has continued to fall and decline um, many of the Chinese mothers and newly married couples have been complaining that some of the policies and incentives they're being offered are being offered by local governments, who are not then able to make good on the incentives. For example, childcare vouchers and other monetary um, incentives, uh, because the local government themselves, uh, local governments themselves, are still dealing with an enormous debt crisis.
0: Mm. And in terms of of, of local spending, I mean, we see that sort of restaurants and and, uh, consumer spending is is down there. Are are there any, apart from obviously encouraging population growth, are there any pushes to, to, to drive that up?
6: No, there hasn't been any uh, any announcement coming from the center. Uh, and last year, there was a 15% increase in the government's debt-to-GDP ratio. So that's quite significant. Uh, and now, with these new programs to try to uh, incentivize uh, new births, uh, there's been an increase in social financing of 27% to GDP. So what that means is, on top of its other problems, China is struggling now with increasing debt burden. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is very worrying.
0: So, I mean, how then would you rate the overall health of what is the world's second largest economy and its prospects for recovery?
6: Well, at the end of December, Moody's changed its outlook for China's debt to negative. So uh, Moody's Investor Services is one of the most uh, widely trusted uh, such services, uh, globally speaking. And their experts have uh, basically indicated that due to the rising debt levels um, in China's regional and local governments, most of which are struggling to maintain uh, their current balance of payments, is going to force the Chinese government to step in with financial assistance. But whether or not the Beijing will do that, uh, we do not know because Xi Jinping has a very negative view of taking on debt.
0: Patricia, thank you very much indeed. That's Patricia Thornton there. Now, still to come on the programme, Japan Airlines appoints its first female president. We'll unpack this major symbolic step with Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson. This is the Globalist. <laughs> Now, joining me with today's newspapers from Paris is Agnès Poirier, who's a journalist and the author of the book Notre Dame, the Soul of France. Good morning to you, Agnès. Good morning. Uh, So let's focus uh, right now on Britain, Uh, Rishi Sunak, and he won his vote on the Rwanda bill. Remind us what this is and what's going on.
7: Well, I mean, the rebellion ended with a whimper, says the Times. So uh, basically, in the end, the Tory rebels, uh, they were 60 at the beginning of uh, the weekend, ended up being uh, not even 10. Um, Why didn't they rebel in the end? Well, because they didn't dare risking to topple their own government. Um, So Rishi Sunak secured a majority of 44 in the Commons for his Rwanda bill, which will now go to the law. So, so what is this bill? Well, it is designed to deport asylum seekers to Kigali and disapply elements of a human rights legislation and declare Rwanda a safe country. Uh, but of course, it's going to prove uh, difficult. The Economist calls it a pyrrhic victory for Sunak. And uh, it says, if Mr. Sunak scores more victories like this, he shall be ruined. Of course, the irony, if you remember, is that None of this was necessary because uh, Mr. Sunak was against the Rwanda plan when he was chancellor, but then had to endorse it uh, in the race to uh, the Tory leadership. So what's going to happen to that bill now that it's been passed in in the comments? Um, It's going to go uh, to the House of Lords. But, of course, uh, there's this question that it will leave Britain in breach of international law. So we'll see what the House of Lords is making of it. And, you know, more and more observers think that the bill will never be implemented uh, on time before the next general elections. And as ever with the Conservative Party, even the rebels are divided and the and the parties divided, which leads actually uh, the Times this morning to really focus more on a latest YouGov poll that found that support for uh, the Conservatives has fallen to just 20 percent, 20 percent. Remember, it's the last level not seen since Liz Truss was in office, which I think says it all. Mm -hmm. So um, now Labour has a 27-point lead over the Tories, but there is Reform UK, uh, founded by uh, uh, Nigel Farage, that in that very YouGov poor, is, is uh, capitalising on Tory divisions. Uh, is suddenly of a migration
0: and it's increased to 12%, which is enormous. Mm. And I mean, just to be clear, these Tories that were uh, voting against the bill weren't doing it out of compassion. It was because they felt it didn't go far enough. Well, exactly. That's why
7: you know Rishi Sunak is in this impossible situation, and that's why also uh, Keir Starmer uh, was just trying to ridicule him in the Commons. And th- there's really this uh, sense that it's all pantomime, and that. Bill, Rwanda Bill, will never see daylight simply because, you know, for some it doesn't go far enough for, for uh, you know, some of the in the Tory party. And uh, for for most of the Tory centrist, it's, 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 it was never, uh, you know, a moral way of dealing with uh, asylum
0: seekers. Mm. So as Britain moves further to the right, it seems that your country is fighting against that. What's Emmanuel Macron been saying? Oh, well, there was
7: a, a big moment in French politics on Tuesday night. Um, a press conference televised from the Elizabeth Palace in front of hundreds of journalists. And President Macron so reset his presidency. He's got three years left in power. And he intends uh, to, uh, you know, to be as daring as when he first arrived in, uh, um, in 17. Um, so he's got a new government with France's young guest ever prime minister, the 34-year-old Gabriel et al. And he intends to be as daring and efficient as is possible. So um, it's very interesting what the frying press, for instance, the New York Times, but also L'Express in France or Le Parisien uh, think of it. Well, the style, for instance, was typical of President Macron, you know, uh, energetic, pugnacious, uh, convincing, a bit too professorial for ju- US journalists, but uh, on the whole, Brilliant. This is what Roger Cohen, the uh, New York Times correspondent, said. Uh, his shakeup at the start of the new year is designed, at least in part, to ensure Marine Le Pen is not his successor. Because, of course, um, President Macron won't be able to uh, seek uh, a third uh, term, and we still don't know who is going uh, to uh, run for presidency in the, uh, on the centre or the left or uh, the right. But we suddenly uh, know that Marine Le Pen will be running. Um, so he, uh, for two hours, uh, a, a bit more even, he, President Macron uh, gave a sort of dissertation or a disquisition, as the New York Times call it, on the state of France and its place in a troubled world. He he really uh, made a lot of announcers, announcements, uh, for instance, uh, education. So theatre... And uh, more, and and the art history uh, will make uh, um, their uh, entrance, if you if you like, in the national uh, curriculum. Um, before it was uh, kind of optional, um, there will also be an experiment in using uniforms uh, in a 100- hundred schools uh, this year, sort of tool to hide social differences. Of course, it's not novel in a country like Britain, but it would be quite revolutionary in France. Uh, There's also announcements about uh, income taxes uh, decreasing next year by two billion euros in for Ukraine, new arm deliveries. And President Macron said that he will be going to Kiev in a few weeks time. Uh, Announcements also to tackle the decline of uh, birth in France, which is at its lowest in a generation with a six-month parental leave. I mean, the, you know, the list is quite long. Mm. So uh, in 10 days' time, the prime minister will have to sort of condense all this when he addresses the National Assembly
0: for the first time. Uh, and finally, Agnes, there's a new trend in Paris. Tell us about the festive restaurant. Yes, well, the you know,
7: the, the capital of fine dining is also apparently becoming the capital of festive dining. So what is it? Well, if you are familiar with places like Chamonix or, or, or all different kinds of ski resorts, of Saint-Tropez in the um, south of France, apparently it's very common there. Um, so basically, you are charged quite a lot of money uh, to eat, but also dance and sing. And all at once, if you can. (laughs) Uh, So there are a few restaurants like the Casbah, a couscous place in the 11th arrondissement of Paris, where every Wednesday you can have couscous and dance and ask the pianist to play your favourite tunes. Of course, it doesn't come very cheap, and a lot of people find it quite, uh, you know, uh, that the bill is rising, but, uh, you know, restaurateurs say, well, you need to pay for the pianist. And at least... Uh, You can have your dinner until 2 a.m. without disturbing anyone.
0: Agnes, thank you very much indeed. That's Agnes Poirier there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. An Ecuadorian prosecutor who was investigating the on-air attack at a television station last week has been killed. Ecuador has suffered a recent burst of violence and in response, President Daniel Noboa declared a 60-day state of emergency, including a nighttime curfew, and he's designated 22 criminal groups as terrorist organizations. Singapore's former transport minister has been charged in court, the anti-corruption agency said today, in one of the most high-profile graft cases involving a minister there in decades. The case has has gripped Singapore, a major Asian financial hub that prides itself on a squeaky clean government that's rarely affected by corruption or scandals involving political leaders. And protests against the far-right alternative for Germany party are gaining momentum in the wake of a report that two senior party members joined a meeting to discuss plans for the mass deportation of citizens of foreign origin. It was the latest in a wave of protests around the country that have attracted tens of thousands. Politicians this week discussed the possibility of calling on the Constitutional Court to ban the AFD, although most concurred it risked backfiring. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. <laughs> Yesterday, Samsung launched its latest flagship phones at the Samsung Unpacked event in San Jose. Well, I'm joined from there by Monocle's technology correspondent, David Phelan. David, many thanks for coming on the show again. I understand it was quite the event. Yes, it, it's really something. Um, Samsung has always had
1: big, glitzy events. I remember going to one at uh, Radio City Music Hall in New York, where there was a full orchestra on stage playing essentially a Samsung theme over and over again. Well, we heard, we saw uh, an advert played over and over uh, this morning. There was no um, orchestra today, but there was a huge stage that was. An entire light panel so that when people walked on it, it would seem to move. And when it stopped moving, they would seem to slightly float in the air. So it, it was a kind of it was a remarkable event, not just because it was very spectacular, but also because it was there to launch three new phones, the S24, S24 Plus, S24 Ultra. But the hardware wasn't mentioned for almost an hour. That's extraordinary. So
0: what were they talking about in that time?
1: So the big thing, you won't be surprised when I say that the buzzword AI came into it. They're saying that this is going to be the phone that has Galaxy AI. And they showed um, example after example of what will set this phone apart and some of them indeed looked very good you will now be able to make a phone call on the latest galaxy phone and talk to say you're in a foreign country you can phone a restaurant and you can speak in your language and it will translate it in real time uh live on the air uh, on the phone call to the uh, the restaurant that you're calling so that you can make um, a, a booking for a dinner that evening. For example, I did it. It works very effectively. It's fast. Um, it gets most things right, uh, although the Spanish translation went a bit awry at the end when it said five brainy people for dinner at seven is silly. <laughs> but I think that was a confirmation nonetheless.
0: Uh, and there's also something called Transcript Assist.
1: Yes, this is going to be great for anyone who's in a meeting. It's going to be brilliant for journalists transcribing interviews, which, as you will know, Georgina is the most tedious part of a job. And essentially, you can record uh, a meeting. You can record an interview and providing it lasts longer than 20 seconds that at the end of it, it will transcribe it into um, into text. Uh, There are other services that do this and this does require a connection to the internet for the transcription, but it worked really well. I would say it was absolutely as good as anything I've ever used before, perhaps a little better. Uh, uh, Still mistakes uh, occasionally, but on the whole it was a a kind of very impressive demonstration of exactly what the hardware and software are going to be able to do.
0: I believe you tried to trip it up intentionally. (laughs) Yes, I did. I kept putting in...
1: Words that didn't seem to make any sense in the context like parsnips and flatulence and indeed it got it all right uh, b- but it, I must say that the, the Samsung person who's doing the demonstration did look a bit surprised by it all.
0: I trust the British journalist to make the fart joke. Um, what's the actual hardware like?
1: It's beautiful. The uh, Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra, I've got one right here, is, is, I think, the nicest phone they've ever made. It's like the latest uh, Apple iPhone 15 Pro. It's got a titanium frame. It's got um, a very advanced um, uh, glass uh, called Corning Gorilla Armor um, that it, they say is going to be much stronger. It's got a flatter screen than last year's Samsung, so it 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 looks great if you're watching a movie. It's quite a big screen, six point eight inches. Uh, and then on the back, it's got the inevitable cameras. It's got four cameras, uh, and it's really upgraded the um, telephoto camera to a much higher resolution so that you can get great shots at even a a long distance.
0: And the price point?
1: It's gone up a little bit uh, this year. It starts at uh, £1,249 or $1,299 in the US. Um, But they would argue that it's such a big step forward that a little price increase uh, is justified. Essentially, it's a premium phone. That's the price for the Ultra. The S24 and the S24 Plus are a bit cheaper.
0: And and David, in this uh, Apple iPhone connected world, is one still at a disadvantage uh, with a Samsung or a Galaxy?
1: It's a good point because you're right. If you've got an iPhone, it connects to your Mac or your iPad, your AirPods seamlessly. Samsung is going in the same direction. They have their own um, s- smartwatch, they have their own uh, earbuds. And they even, of course, have their own laptops in, in some uh, countries. And they are making those connect up uh, much more as well. And in fact, a- although Apple has just uh, recently um, sold more phones than Samsung for the first time in years, these are the two giants. And you, basically, if you have either Apple or Samsung, you're on a winner.
0: Yeah. And finally, David, they also launched the Samsung Ring at the event. What's that?
1: Yes, I wasn't going to mention that because it was just a tease. It said we've got this um, smart ring and that's all they said. But since I I, I, um, was at the keynote, I've since been talking to the guy in charge of it. And it's a really interesting uh, thing. It's a health ring that um, there are other things on the market already. There's the aura, there's the ultra human rings, and they're there to um, be able to monitor your health metrics, especially at night when people don't necessarily want to wear a smartwatch, and to be able to passively see how well you're sleeping, what your uh, blood oxygen levels are like, what your, uh, um, uh, even maybe your blood pressure, we don't know, because they've given very little details of it. But the idea is that you will be able to monitor your sleep much better without having a a, a, a watch on your wrist. And it will mean that you can find out more about your health. They're very much into wellness and, and fitness in that way.
0: David, thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's technology correspondent, David Phelan, speaking to us from San Jose. You're with Monocle Radio. To the snowy mountains of Davos now, where the World Economic Forum annual meeting is taking place. Monocle's Christy O'Grady met with astronaut Nicole Stott and astronaut wrangler Christina Corp about their annual efforts to educate attendees on the positive impact space exploration has on life on Earth in the hopes of funding future projects. Christy began by asking Nicole if she thinks people have started taking notice.
2: Well, I, I hope so. I also think though that there's still so much opportunity to reach and engage with people that do have the means to take the solutions that are available out there and apply them to the most significant planetary challenges that we have. I mean, one of the surprises I had last year was coming here and we use the example of, of something like space-based solar power, You know, generating all of you know, the energy that we need for the planet from space in space, beaming it back to earth. And yes, there are still some uh, challenges with doing that. To do that, it might be a 60 to $100 billion investment to make that happen. Coming here to a world where every time we presented those numbers, we were told that's not a lot of money. To then discover that the World Cup last year was $200 billion or the Asian Winter Games that will be happening this year in Saudi, they're estimating. uh, And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we connect with these people in a way that makes those numbers real as they seem to the rest of us and apply them to the greatest challenges that we have?
4: I'd like to add to that because we were at the Time Reception last night, Time Magazine Reception. And uh, we were talking to a man and he was saying to me, I was just at a family office meeting and they were saying, we have $2 trillion in this room, trillion. And we're just trying to figure out where to put this money. And our jaws drop because we're like, oh my gosh, you know, here we are developing technologies in space for the most extreme environment where there is nothing to survive in. And we figure out how to survive. And we can use all of that for the planet and to take better care of the planet. And people are in this room talking to each other about trillions of dollars and they don't know where to... The future of astronauts with big sponsorship
2: logos on there. (laughs) 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 Well, there could be. You know, I mean, the commercial space industry, I guess, is starting to open up more and more opportunity for more and more people to have access to space. And business is going to have to be a part of it. Right, Sponsorships are going to have to be a part of it. Companies that are involved in ways that hopefully... I mean, I think of Blue Origin as an example. This whole you know, business of purpose that's looking at how do we lift industry off the planet, protect Earth and its environment in the way it needs to be, and utilize the relatively benign environment of space to take advantage of those resources for the positive back to Earth.
4: And I don't mind if there's a brand... That sees the value of space and wants to do it in a positive, inspiring, cool way. I think that having those partnerships is good because then they can reach the masses who don't get exposed to space. I mean, there are times where we have turned down brand partnerships because there is some troublesome things that, you know, we don't want to be associated with just because they want to be a part of space. But I think that there is value if you can find the right partners. I mean, this reminds me of uh, we've spoken to you before on the Foreign Desk about having to sort of turn to commercial because it's hard to get government funding, especially when the public don't understand, they don't care, they think that that money can be used better elsewhere. And obviously in the last couple of weeks, NASA did launch a new project, which because of the fuel issues is not going to be as successful as they hoped. I did see online a lot of discourse about that, about, oh, we could have used that money for, Mm. you know, Alzheimer's research, you name it. What do you think about this sort of re-energized interest from the government to get to the moon again? Do you have high hopes for it? Love it. Love it.
2: I mean, there's so much. I mean, we just don't have the time today even really like to just talk about everything about the moon that makes it a just purposeful thing to do. We're talking this time about going to stay, establishing permanent settlement on the moon. And it always ends up being our argument to, well, we could be spending that money better down here on Earth. You know, slamming the billionaires for spending their money to go to space instead of everything that we're doing to go to space is ultimately about improving life on Earth. And we've learned something from that that astrobotic mission that just went, you know, and that mission was not just to oh, well, let's go see if we can land something on the moon. it was in partnership with NASA with other countries, with public research organizations, universities, and private companies to utilize the environment of space you know for the benefit of life on Earth and for the benefit of exploring even further and so I'm really sad that they didn't get there, but if you really look under the surface of it, a lot of it is built on a public private partnership where NASA or another space agency is partnering with commercial companies to allow them to kind of ramp up, right? With the hope that they'll be able to extend the business or the the exploratory, you know, activities that they're doing On their own, in an even more meaningful and purposeful way, without having to depend on NASA or a government agency to do that. And I think that's what this place is all about. You know, coming to something like the World Economic Forum, the idea is not to have to rely on your governments to do everything, right? We should be looking for the pathways to solutions that leverage what the government can support for us and then take it, you know, so much further than any government ever could do.
0: Astronaut Nicole Stott and astronaut wrangler Christine Korp talking to Christy O'Grady there. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Well, now it's time to get the latest from the Nordics with Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov. Good morning to you, Petri.
8: Good morning, Georgina. Uh,
0: let's start in Iceland because, of course, we're seeing this huge volcanic activity. What's the latest on this?
8: Right, so as we remember um, last week, sort of last weekend, we saw these gigantic uh, volcanic eruptions uh, in a town and uh, near the town of uh, Grindavik, uh, just south of the capital Reykjavik, and we saw in the news how thousands of residents were and were forced to evacuate now now sort of the activity has a little bit calmed down but scientists have had time to look into this event and they've discovered that this is not a one-off event but actually there's this um what they call a long dormant fault line running under the country which has now woken up meaning that there will probably be similar eruptions uh with very little warning for years to come so not necessarily not, not very good news for the um icelanders living Living near that city.
0: Uh, and how much is it going to impact on essential infrastructure?
8: Right. So, so, you know, they, they had to close down, for example, the um, famous tourist resort Blue Lagoon, which is uh, sort of located near the town of Grindavik, And it also poses a threat to a, a geothermal plant uh, in the area, which actually provides electricity and water to quite a few um, um, Icelanders, actually one-tenth of the population. But they do say that they don't predict um, sort of a similar uh, eruption as we saw in 2010 when, you know, um, huge huge amounts of ash um, blasted into the atmosphere from the, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this now, Eyjafjallajökull volcano, and you know, which forced a lot of flights, hundreds of thousands of flights to be cancelled. So they don't foresee anything of, of that scale.
0: Which is which is a, a big relief and congratulations. I think you pronounced that perfectly. Uh, let's go to Eurovision. Eurovision News is always cheering, although in this case, it's not a great story. This is about Nordic artists calling for Israel to be banned from the competition.
8: Yes, so um, a group of Finnish and Icelandic artists are calling for a boycott of of Israel and and for Israel to be banned from Eurovision 24, which will be hosted in in Malmö in in Sweden, Um, of course, on on the grounds of the war in, in Gaza. And it's quite a few, quite a large number of artists actually in Finland alone. The artists that that have signed the boycott um, request are, the number is over 1,400 artists. Some of them are actually running to be the representative of, of, of Finland in this competition.
0: I mean, the point has been made, though, that this is a contest for broadcasters and singers. It's not for governments
8: yeah that's that's what the euro eurovision sort of the european broadcasting union that runs and organizes eurovision that's their response that you know this is a this is not a government contest it's a contest of public broadcasters and it's an apolitical event and the israeli public broadcaster has sent its representative uh, for the contest uh for for more than uh, 50, 50 years, um, uh, but then quite interestingly, the the authors of the artists that signed the petition accused the Finnish public broadcaster YLE of double standards because you know as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, um, the um, the Finnish um, public broadcaster decided that they want to uh, boycott Ukraine, boycott Russia, Russia uh, taking part in Eurovision. So so yeah, some some double standards there, according to the artists.
0: Yeah, well, let's go to Finland now. Tell us the story about a. Asylum Seekers
8: right so this is a story that we've been following uh, for months now uh, how how Russia has um, essentially um, transported asylum seekers to the Finnish border and some 1300 asylum seekers have cr- come to Finland um, and it sparked quite a quite an intense debate in Finland um, between sort of quite along the left and right uh, lines of, 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 of politics but now the Finnish security and intelligence Service uh, SUPO, sort of our <clears throat> our equivalent of MI5, if you will. Uh, they, they now claim that um, some of these um, asylum seekers might be informers and that Russia might be paying them to uh, send um, sensitive information about Finland uh, to Russia. So quite a turn of events.
0: Uh, ab- absolutely. But they're saying that this is not actually in large numbers.
8: No, no, not at all. Yeah, they're, they're, they're saying that it, it's, uh, it's it's just a handful of uh, asylum seekers. But, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this affects the whole debate, because this is essentially what the far right has been saying in Finland all the time, that, hey, these, these uh, asylum seekers are a security threat. And the left has been saying that, well, no, they're actually people in, in need of help. So, you know, even if it's a mo- if just a very modest number of them that might be in- informers, then it's still, you know, the right wing is just going to use this as a political fodder in the, in the debate
0: and these are people third country people so they're coming from places like Afghanistan just planning to be just passing through Russia basically
8: absolutely and they they are vulnerable people and you know they are from countries like as you said Iraq Syria Afghanistan that you know they they probably would be would have the right to asylum in in Finland but you know of course Russian authorities have helped them so they are in debt to the Russian authorities so so that's probably what's also in the background of, yeah. all of this
0: Okay, finally, let's talk about a very crispy burger.
8: <laughs> oh yes, I, I just had to include this story to, to have some some light light stuff there as well. So this is quite interesting. So um, McDonald's is, is launching its new Mac Crispy Burger uh, chicken burger, sorry, in in Sweden, and they're running a rather unorthodox ad campaign. Now, this uh, Swedish agency ad agency called uh, Nord uh, DDB claims that the burger is actually so crunchy that the sound that it makes as you bite into it is musical and to prove their point they've actually composed a classical music piece called not surprisingly uh, the crunch um and, and in in this piece the burger performs together with a full uh, symphony orchestra led by the swedish conductor peter nurdal well I, I think ble- we need to hear that really yes, exactly I? I believe i believe we have we have a clip so we can listen to how crunchy it is
0: I'm not sure I could sit through a whole evening of that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, I mean, this has done great things for the ad agency concerned.
8: Yes, it has. And this is agency, um, I, I, I just have to rem- uh, remind the listeners they've, they've, uh, they're kind of pushing the envelope with fun ads. They've done that before, also. You know, they they turned digital billboards into food trucks, and they did, had this like time travel campaign where they travel back to lower prices. And then I think their most recent uh, campaign for McDonald's was that they designed a whole uh, clothing line based on McDonald's uniforms. They cooperated with a very very hyped up um, Finnish fashion designer uh, brand called uh, Vane. Um, so, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an agency that keeps doing stuff like that. And, yeah, they're, they're getting a lot of uh, publicity for it.
0: Excellent. Petri, thank you very much indeed. That was Petri Bertsoff there. And you're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio.
1: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
6: To find out how we could help you,
1: contact us at ubs.com.
0: Pan Airlines, or JAL, has been much in the news lately. Earlier this month, there was a collision between a JAL plane and a Japanese Coast Guard aircraft at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. All 379 people aboard the airliner escaped as it burst into flames. Well, the airline is trying to recover from the effects of the pandemic and refocus as tourists begin to return. And as part of this, the company has named its first female president. Well, I'm joined now by Fiona Wilson, who's Monocle's Asia editor and bureau chief in Tokyo. Uh, Fiona, lovely to have you back on the show. This is a real story of personal achievement. Tell us about Mitsuka Totori, who began her career with the company as a flight attendant. Yeah, Georgina,
5: absolutely. What a story. Yeah. So she joined the company in 1985, uh, cabin crew, and she's worked her way up to the top. I mean, it's quite a story. She's done all sorts of jobs. She was running customer experience in the pandemic. She helped A lot of people working for Gel had to be moved into other uh, positions, other industries to help them keep their jobs. And she was in charge of that process. So she's really uh, seen the uh, company from the ground up. And she joined in a year when Jal had uh, this famously horrendous air crash. Uh, more than 500 people were killed. Uh, one of the worst crashes ever in uh, air history. So she's uh, she's seen the company through some terrible
0: times. Mm, and so this is a good time for her to step in. And I wonder if this management reshuffle is connected to this latest collision at all.
5: No I mean I'm sure this was already lined up I mean if you you know the sort of Japanese uh, financial year it starts in April and they, uh, this is the moment in the year when people are announcing the big changes that will happen the fresh changes at the start of the financial year I'm sure this was already uh, thought about for a long time and also JaL has now got this policy they want 30% of people uh, in management to be women by 2030, which is fast approaching. I think they're at about 23% at the moment. That was at the last count. And uh, yeah, they're looking to hit that
0: 30% target. So what will be in Tartori's intro when she takes over in April? What what are the current issues facing GEL apart from increasing female leadership?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, they've just had this uh, horrendous start to the year with a a plane setting fire on a runway uh, at Haneda. But I think one of the big things that's going to really impact uh, Japan is just the the absolute sort of uh, influx of people coming into Japan at the moment, you know, really being able to cater to all those people who want to come into Japan. Every flight's full, um, as you know. Uh, maybe the outbound flights uh, with Japanese tourists not as full as they were. The yen is so weak that uh, Japanese travellers are Possibly staying home a bit more, but yeah, it's really you know getting back to full strength. Um, we're really seeing Japan tourism rebound at the moment,
0: and so uh, particularly for, for for Japan Airlines, what do you think's on on the agenda in terms of of expansion and so on?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, so Japan Airlines, if you don't know about the history, they've had a very rocky uh, the the the, the you yeah, know the period from two thousand and ten very rocky after the big sort of economic crash two thousand eight. Um, Japan Airlines you know this is the national carrier it declared bankruptcy so it's been a, a, a decade of recovery. And I think that's where Japan, Japan Airlines is. It's, it's you know, it's got, it changed its livery. It's it's really kind of trying to rebuild itself um, as, as the country's leading airline.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, the government wants a third of leadership positions at major businesses to go to women by 2030. As you were saying, that's Japan Airlines' aim too. Uh, they actually failed to achieve that goal by 2020. And I wondered if you could just speak to us more generally about the gender gap in the workplace in Japan?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, Japan is often being berated for falling short, both in terms of parity, in terms of representation. um, Not enough women in senior management. It it always falls very, very low on any of those measures. The gender parity measures, it's it's really down at the bottom. And also in terms of gender pay gap, um, you know, it's really low. Uh, It's one of the lowest Um, in the OECD, uh, South Korea at worst. But Japan is is really um, near the bottom there. So that's a big challenge for Japan. How can it improve those numbers? And they are taking a lot of steps. And one of the big changes here was a law which now obliges any company with more than 300 people. They have to say what the gender gap is. They have to reveal what they're paying people. So these companies are now being held to account. And that, that's made a big difference. I think things are changing in terms of representation at management level. That's changing very rapidly. They are under pressure from foreign investors to show that their management boards are, are more diverse. So, yeah, I think there's pressure coming from inside and outside
0: at the moment. Mm. What do you the reasons, do you think, for the gender gap within Japan?
5: I mean, there are so many reasons. It's interesting. It's 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 you know, it's, it's such a long, complicated subject. And you would have to say also, if you're looking at airlines specifically, it's not unique to Japan. I mean, the airline industry has been pretty terrible about putting women at the top. Um so it's only recently that we're starting to see, you know, Qantas putting someone, in the, a woman, at the top. So in that sense, you could say it's not just Japan's problem. But I think if you're looking at, you know, representation for women, there are all sorts of reasons. Too many women, plenty of women in the workforce. That's not the problem. But too many women in slightly vulnerable part-time jobs, big commitments with childcare, looking after elderly parents. So there are a lot of sort of reasons, societal reasons why Japanese women find it difficult to hold down high-powered full-time jobs they've got lots of other commitments and just traditionally it's been their role to look after both the older and younger members of the family but I, i do i see a lot of change in that direction so um and i think you know society may have to catch up with legislation which is progressive. um, And I think that at the moment that that's probably what's going on.
0: Mm. And I mean, sometimes there's criticism that just to fill those quotas, women are parachuted in perhaps without the relevant experience. But what Japan Airline has shown us that it really does nurture talent from within.
5: Yeah. And I think it just shows, I mean, who could be better? You know, someone who's really, you know, been in the business from the ground up. And there was a similar appointment when Suntory um, Food and Drink, um, they, they appointed uh, Makiko Ono, another woman who'd been in the business, really, you know, really understood it from, from the ground up. Yeah. And, and it just shows it, it, it can be very successful.
0: Absolutely. Fiona, thank you very much indeed. That's Fiona Wilson in Tokyo there. And that's all. For today's programme, thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Emma Searle and Isabella Jewell, our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. And after the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live. And today, I believe it is coming from Davos and The uh, Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.